and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's open the quick word of prayer. Father, we ask that you will send your spirit into our hearts to teach us what it is we need to learn, to form us in the ways we need to be formed. May your word land like lightning on our hearts, like a bomb for those who are broken. We offer this time to you. May it be yours. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we're finishing up our last sermon on our Church of Values series, last week I began by talking a little bit about the legacy of our church, and uh, I wanted to start with a similar way. And I actually want to tell the story of our church, because it's a beautiful story, and it has to do with this last value that we're going to talk about today, which is local ministry. So our church started on March 10th, 1940. This is all according to a, a, there's a church report I found from 1955, and has all this historical information. But according to this report, on March 10th, 1940, a group of young people from Highland Baptist Church went to the neighborhood surrounding what was then Baptist Hospital and surveyed the residents. And what they found out was that there was a large proportion of houses uh, where people did not attend church anywhere. There were unchurched, likely unchristian folk. And so there was a decision to try to plant a church in this neighborhood. And so that began as a church plant on Brent Street. If you walk down Vine Street, uh, if you walk out the front door, walk left down Vine Street past Breckenridge, Brent Street parallels Vine Street on that side. And it, they started by renting a house and actually began as a Sunday school for kids in the afternoon. They did that for a few months, and then finally they transitioned to a Sunday morning service. Uh, during these first uh, seven years of the church, there was a whole lot to be encouraged by. Again, it began as a children's Sunday school outreach, and they were having so much effectiveness reaching out to kids that the juvenile crime rate in the neighborhood dropped. And uh, they were actually able to get the city to pave Brent Street because the city saw how much benefit the church plant was having to that neighborhood. Uh, the church plant grew. It outgrew the house on Brent Street. Uh, they were at about 70 on a Sunday morning. They actually, that's why they moved to Vine Street, because they outgrew their space there. They rented a house here on Vine Street that was a little bit bigger, and then they bought this plot of land that we're sitting on, um, and they laid a foundation, and they had plans to buy a army surplus chapel. This is 1946. World War II had happened. They built all these chapels to, you know, minister to to the servicemen, and uh, once the war was over, they didn't need as many. And so there was a, an army surplus chapel at Bowman Field that they were going to buy and move and reconstruct on the foundation. So a lot of encouraging things in those first seven years, but there's also a lot of discouragement. In those first seven years, Vine Street had five different pastors. 
That's a pastor quicker than once every year and a half. Uh, another discouragement was that when they moved to Vine Street, many of the folks on Brent Street who were going wouldn't come. It was too far. And to give you an idea, that's less than half a mile. Um, again, this is the 40s. We thought differently about commuting for church, but many of them wouldn't come. That was discouraging. All these people that had come to reach that God was, was, was working in, they, they stopped coming. Um, then the, the purchase of the army surplus chapel fell through, and so they had this plot of land with a foundation and no way to build on it. Uh, and then again, another pastor left, and in a, a low point of the church, in consultation with Highland Baptist, who was still pretty involved, they decided it was time to close the doors, call it quits, and they wanted to sell the piece of land we're sitting on. And they actually had an apartment developer lined up. And it looked like things were not going well for Vine Street. And here's where we begin to see God's providence. Because the city wouldn't rezone the, 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 the property um, to build an apartment on. It was zoned for a religious building. And when the, the developer petitioned to have it rezoned so they could build an apartment, the city refused. And so the, the, the land sat empty for two years. There was just a foundation on it. The church plant continued to meet in the house on Vine Street. You know, another pastor came and went. It was two years of discouragement. They weren't sure what's coming next. And then finally, in 1949, the, doors be, or the, the church turned a corner. They called the new pastor. His name was David Nelson. He was a pastor when Betty got here, when Joe got here. I'm not sure if he was the pastor when you got here, Jenny. He was? Okay, you came later. Donnie, Donnie okay, okay. Uh, so during David Nelson's pastorship, the membership stabilized, the church began to grow, they finished the foundation into a basement church. Uh, so what's below us is a church basement, and they finished that into a church with the resources they had. And finally, on Thanksgiving Day, 1950, at 6 a.m., I don't know why it was at 6 a.m., it was at 6 a.m., they celebrated their first worship service. Sixty people showed up um, to celebrate the first worship service at the corner of Highland and Vine. And in this historical report, there was a concluding paragraph. I'm going to read it for you. The story of Vine Street has been a story of struggle, discouragement, slow beginnings, heartbreaking sacrifice, but it is also the story of the providence of God. Even in the decision of the zoning commission not to rezone the property at Highland and Vine, we can see the protecting finger of God reserving this property for special use. Our church was founded out of a specific desire, a specific burden of a group of young, idealistic students, likely out of Highland Baptist, to see a church that would reach people who needed to know Christ. And although there were many instances in those first seven to nine years in which it looked like it wasn't going to happen, although it was discouraging, overwhelmingly discouraging and frustrating at times, God wanted a witness to his name in this neighborhood. And so here we are, 80 years later, by God's grace. Now again, we're on the sermon series on, on church values. They are uh, first biblical faithfulness, spiritual maturity, compassionate service. And then this fourth one we're looking at is local ministry. As I've mentioned, all these are, are both indicative as well as aspirational. They're indicative of our church. They describe who we've always been, but they're also aspirational. They're things we want to grow in. We want to be more biblically faithful. We want to grow in spiritual maturity. We want to grow in compassionate service and in local ministry. 
And lastly, here we're looking at local ministry, and you'll see in a, in a minute why I uh, uh, give us this whole history of our church. But I want to define local ministry really quick. When I say local ministry is a value for us, local ministry is evangelistic engagement in a specific geographic location. Now, notice I'm saying engagement. This isn't just sharing the gospel. We care for the whole person. But at bare minimum, it means sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people who live in this neighborhood. And this goes all the way back to why our church exists, why it started 80 years ago. It began because of a vision and a Holy Spirit-driven burden for local ministry in the Germantown area of Louisville. That's why we started. That's why we're still here 80 years later. And so as we look at local ministry as a church value, we're going to be looking at Acts, a couple of different passages in Acts. I'm going to give you my main argument, what I'm going to try to show from Scripture, what, I, what we as a church are called to be and to do, and this is it. It's that Jesus created a new community, which is called the church, so that we might engage in local ministry, both local ministry that is near to us and local ministry that is far to us. Jesus Christ created a new community, the church, in order that we might engage an evangelistic outreach, and those around us, both near and far. So we're outlined for us this morning. First, Jesus created a beautiful community. Second, created a beautiful community for ministry near. Third point, for local ministry far. So first point, Jesus created a beautiful community. This is the first premise of my argument, that Jesus died and rose again to form a community. I'm going to argue that negatively here for a second. What this, mean, what, this is not, what this also means that Jesus did not die and rise again to save a bunch of individuals to go on and live their individual autonomous lives. He died and he rose again to make a community of people. Now, this is so basic to the scriptural testament. I, there's, it's hard to proof text this. There's nowhere where Jesus says, yea, I am dying and ri- raising again so that you will be a church. I can't find a text like that for you. But it's so basic. It undergirds all that happens in Acts. It undergirds all that we looked at in Luke. Jesus is, is doing this not so that he might create people who are living their best lives now in their own ways, but to form a community of people who are living together, and as we'll see, on, on a specific mission but I'm going to try to give you some textual evidence so you don't just take my word for it. And, and, and we look at a couple, a couple of verses in Acts. And I want you to notice in all of these significant events that, 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 that Luke describes for us, they all happen in the community of believers together. They don't happen to an individual in their home having a prayer time. It happens when the, when the believers are gathered so first, the ascension of Christ, when he gives his commission, you are my witnesses, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit will clothe you with power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It begins, so when they had come together, Jesus doesn't give this commission, he doesn't, he doesn't give it just to one disciple, it's when they're all gathered together. Acts 1.14, as, as they're waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, wait for, wait for the gift, wait in Jerusalem, It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It's the disciples all together praying. And finally, on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived in Acts 2-1, they were all together in one place. It wasn't, you know, the disciples living in their homes, scattered, doing their own thing. It says they're gathered together in a community 
And then finally, Acts 2.41, when they're counting the events of Pentecost, this is interesting. It says, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. You may think, what does that have to do with community? Luke has described salvation not as there were 3,000 saved, there were 3,000 added. He describes salvation in terms of being added to the community. That's how basic this is. There was an early Christian martyr named St. Cyprian, writing 150 years later, he said, he cannot have God for his father, is not the church for his mother. As Protestants, there's going to be parts of this that we quibble with. We certainly would never say that we're saved by joining a church. But the very least, what it means is that if we're Christian and we're not part of the community that Christ died and bled for, we're well outside of Christ's will for our life. Again, Jesus died and rose again not to create a bunch of autonomous, saved individuals. But he, cried, he, he, he died and rose again to create a community of people. And it was a beautiful community. This is my first point. It was a beautiful community. This is the passage that, that Liberty read for us in Acts 2.42. And I'm going to read it again for us quickly. And just listen to this. Acts 2.42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I, I'm getting this uh, categorization from John Stott. But he looked at this and he said, we can see four marks of a spirit-filled church. This is a church after the spirit has descended, has filled the Christians. And there are four marks we can see of a church that is filled with the spirit. The first we see is as a learning church. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were distinct because they had spent an especially large amount of time with Jesus during his ministry. The 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he spent with his apostles teaching them. And these teachings eventually became what we have as the New Testament. And so this is a spirit-filled church that's, that, 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 that's full of the spirit, that's full of love for Jesus, devotes itself to these teachings. Spirit-filled church is one that studies and reads and strives to understand the things of God, especially as it's revealed in Scripture. A spirit-filled church is not one that's given just to subjective feelings and doesn't bother about studying and thinking, as John Stott says, anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So the first mark of a spirit-filled church is that's a learning church. The second mark is that it's a loving church. Again, verse 42, it says they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles and the fellowship, or the community. Community is kind of a buzzword in our churches. We'll talk about community groups, community outreach, community, I don't know. You, know, you attach community to it, and it's all of a sudden really cool. But oftentimes, in churches that have community groups or small groups, the leaders of community groups, their goal is just to get people to show up. That's the bar we're hitting for. Just, let's just have people come. This is a pretty challenging description of what a fellowship might look like. Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I'm not really interested in answering the question whether this means Christians must be socialists. The answer to that is, is no. I mean, they were still meeting in each other's houses, which means not everyone had sold 
had, and yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want to miss the fact that this was a deep, sacrificial, fully committed, life-changing fellowship. That's what a spirit-filled church looks like. Thirdly, a spirit-filled church is a worshiping church. Again, this is not just a social club of people with like-minded ideas who like to hang out and have good chemistry together, but it's people who gather to worship the living God. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It's interesting. There's two aspects to their worship. There's a formal worship, attending the temple, like we think of as attending a service, but then they're also meeting in each other's homes, an informal worship together. Kind of sounds like small groups. This is one of the reasons why Christians, you know, small groups is not a new thing. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. Because of this, when, when the Spirit fills people with a love for Jesus, a Sunday morning service ain't enough. We want to be with our brothers and sisters to worship Christ throughout the week. And so we have small groups. If you're not part of a small group, I encourage you to, to join. Uh, especially if there's no other way that you're in this kind of informal fellowship with Christians during the week. But anyways, there's two parts. And again, the point, the point of this is that this was not just a social club, but worship of God was at the center. And then the fourth mark of the Spirit-filled church was that this was an evangelistic church. At the end of verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's interesting, when we read this, we usually don't get past the part where it makes them sound like they were socialists, and then we're getting into arguments that Christians have to be socialists, and then we're just like blown by the beauty of the community. And, and we never get to this last verse, but... It was a community that day by day, daily, people were coming to know Christ. What this means is that although this was a deep and and close-knit and intentional fellowship, it was no holy huddle. Uh, You know, uh, all due respect to Rod Dreher, this was no Benedict option of withdrawal from the world. Early Christians were regularly, daily sharing the gospel. Now here's the thing. If you share the gospel every day, there's no guarantee that people will come to Christ every day. But if you don't share the gospel every day, people will not come to Christ every day. And so that's how we can know that this was a community that was given to continuing, regular, daily gospel engagement with those around them. And God in his sovereignty was giving them unusual fruit. It was an evangelistic church. We went through all that Because local ministry has to do with this last mark of the Spirit-filled church. A church that is engaged evangelistically with those in our area. And again, the argument, so the argument making for us that Jesus died and rose again to create a community that will then go engage evangelistically with those around it. So the first point that God created, Jesus died and rose again to create this community, that's the first point. But the second point gets to local ministry. He created this community for a purpose, that we might be engaged evangelistically Uh, engaged in local ministry, specifically for local ministry near us. This is our second point, for local ministry near. Again, I'm going to try to, uh, so much of this is so like assumed in the story and the narrative of Acts, but I'm going to try to give us some textual reference. I mean, right there in in 247b, it's clear that the Christians, that this early Christian church you know, evangelism was not an afterthought for them. It was, it was part of what they were doing. It was why they were there. They were engaging in it regularly. So at the very least, we have to say, well, this, was, this is what the early Christians were characterized by, uh, a passion to see people come to know Christ, a willingness to, to, to bring this into their regular daily routines. But I have a couple other passages I want us to look at. Again, I don't want you to take, the, take my word for it. 
Once you see this is what God wants for us in his word. But Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the, when the Holy Spirit descends in Pentecost, this is a massive moment in, in, in God's history of salvation. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, what were they saying? Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is the first revival the church has ever experienced. But typically, well, not only typically, in my experience is oftentimes when we talk about revival, we're talking about a particularly emotionally intense worship service. Now, I think this was particularly emotionally intense, but it wasn't just a worship service. What happens? It leads to the people of God proclaiming the great works of God. What is that? That is that God came as, as a man. He sent his own son to die on the cross for sinners, for the, for the forgiveness of sin, so that anyone who places their faith in him might know what true life is. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God, it doesn't lead them to a holy huddle. It doesn't lead them to just emotional experience, but it leads them to share the gospel because they've tasted and they've seen the Lord is good. The Holy Spirit comes, Christians engage in local ministry. That's my first point. Again, let's go to chapter 4 in Acts. Peter and John end up getting pulled before the Sanhedrin. Uh, they were a religious council. They're telling John and Peter, hey, you can't preach in Jesus' name anymore, and if you do, we're going to hurt you. That's what they say. And so Peter and John, they're released. They go to their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they begin to pray. Now, if you were in that position, if someone with power said, I'm going to hurt you if you don't stop following Jesus, what do you pray for? Probably for protection. But look at what uh, Peter and John and the community of believers pray for in verses 29 to 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signed and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They don't pray for safety, although they need safety. They don't pray for protection. They pray that the word of God may continue to go forth, that people might continue to come to know Christ. That is what is most primary, most basic for the early church, to engage in local ministry, evangelistic engagement with those near them. And we see this throughout Acts. That's the story of Acts, as a church living out local ministry near and far. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit, well, and again, Jesus died and rose again to form a community that would evangelistically engage those around it. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I don't typically do this, but I want to share some, a, a way that God has been at work in my own life in the last few months. Um, and I want to begin by, by stressing something that's true about me, which is that I'm not naturally evangelistic. When I was a sophomore in high school, I went to a public high school. It was not cool to be a Christian, but I was part of a Wednesday morning Bible study, and uh, I would get there early Wednesday morning, go to this Bible study. I didn't lead it, but I went. And, uh, and, and I would pass this one guy who was standing in a group of students outside waiting for school to start. He was a real tough-looking guy. I don't know. You know, this is rural Pennsylvania. I don't think he was that bad. But in my mind, he was very tough-looking, 
And I began to feel like the Lord was telling me, Mike, you need to invite this guy to Bible study. And I was under deep conviction, and, and it, was, it, was, it was months. Every morning I'd wake up, and I'd have a quiet time, and I'd, I'm like, I need to ask him. Today's the day. And I'd get to school, and I'd immediately be like, no way, I'm not asking him. And it took about three or four months, and I finally, one morning, I, I worked up the courage. I walked up to him and said, hi, would you go to Bible study with me? And he said, no. And I never talked to him again. Okay, so I'm just like, I'm not naturally evangelistic. I just want to preface what I'm going to say. And my point is, is like, if God can do a work like this in my heart, he can do it in yours. Okay? So my story begins about three months ago. I had a meeting with George Martin at Baxter Avenue Baptist. Uh, this past year, I've been trying to get to know the, the churches that we pray for, meeting with their pastors. How can we pray for them better? How can we better partner with them? Uh, it's beautiful to be in a, church, in, in a city where there's more than one church in, in the city. And so I met with George Martin. He's a, the pastor at Baxter Avenue Baptist. And he was sharing what they do uh, for neighborhood outreach. And he said for the past three years, they've been going out into the neighborhood once a month during the summer months, and they just talk to people and they try to share Christ with them. And he's telling me this, and there is nothing that he is saying that sounds at all appealing to me. I'm like, okay, that may work where you're from, but like if we go out in Germantown trying to share the gospel with people, people are going to be like upset, and they're going to be offended, and, and they're not going to want to talk to us, and like that's not strategic or innovative or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm rationalizing in my mind why that could never work at our church, why we shouldn't be doing that. And then also, to be honest, I'm also feeling a little bit offended, like my ego is being, is being peaked, because I'm like, how, you know, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? And it was not, it was, it was not a good moment for me as a Christian, my pride was very involved. So at the end of that meeting, uh, it ends, and, and, and I didn't appreciate it at all. I didn't really want to uh, talk to George Martin again after that. Um, but a few days later, God begins to bring this conversation back to my mind, and I can't, I can't get it out of my mind what they would do going out into the neighborhood once a month. I just, I couldn't. God kept bringing it back, and after a couple of weeks, I began to realize, I think the Spirit is, is, is convicting me of something and it felt, again, this was not a vision, but it felt like the Lord was telling me, Mike, this may sound old-fashioned, it may sound ineffective, it may sound embarrassing, but you just need to get out there and start talking to people in this neighborhood about Jesus and his gospel. So after a few weeks, I said, okay, we got to do this. Now, again, I had no idea if it would work, so before I made this a church event, I just grabbed two guys. I can't remember who went with me, but I grabbed two guys from Vine Street, and I was like, let's just go out and, and see what happens if we go out and we talk to people and try to have spiritual conversations. And it's, uh, there, peer pressure can be a good thing, okay, because if I hadn't invited two guys from our church, I probably would have talked myself out of it uh, eventually and been like, you know, we don't really need to do this, blah, 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 rationalize, rationalize, rationalize. But once there's two guys from the church, and I'm like the pastor, I can't be the one flaking anymore. You know? So I'm going to be there, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm terrified. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing to walk out here with express you know, goal of I want to talk to someone and somehow share the gospel with them. But I have two guys you know, who are in my church. I'm the pastor, so I have to look bold. So, so we go out, and lo and behold, uh, and, and by the way, it was, it was like late February, and of course it's 45 degrees it's the coldest day of that week. It's gray. I'm like, no one's going to be out. This is awful. And we see the first guy walking along, and I, I almost don't talk to him because I think he's not going to talk to us. And long story short, we end up having a few conversations, nothing crazy, but some really good conversations. Everyone's really friendly. No one's offended by us talking to them. And some of these conversations get into some real stuff. 
And I get to the end of that, and, I, and my mind is blown. I'm thunderstruck. I couldn't believe that this actually worked, that people weren't just telling us to, like, get out of their face. And I began to see this might actually be a way that we can be involved in this neighborhood. So we, we, we had our first uh, neighborhood, I, I'm not even sure what we're calling it yet, neighborhood walk. We had four guys from our church come. And again, we ended up having some obviously divinely appointed meetings I mean, just a, a time when, I, I could tell you some stories, but it was, just, it was just clear. God had placed this person there. We went out walking by the Spirit. And as we finished that, um, as we finished that first time going out, in my mind, and, and let, me just, let me just say, um, yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking, I want to do this more than once a month. But as we've been going out, it's been changing me, and this is where I'm kind of going with this. Now, it's, it's, this is a few months, right, this is a few months into this. This is a work in progress. I don't know where the Lord's going to go with this. But there's been two ways it's been changing me. First, it's, it's reminded me in, in a deep, like, conviction level why we as a church are here. It's reminded me why we, you know, again, I, I wanted to read that paragraph in the beginning about how it was discouraging and hard, because sometimes ministry of ministry can be discouraging and hard. Why do we do it? We it's reminded me we're here because God wants a witness for his name. There are people in this neighborhood who God is calling to himself, and he wants to use us if we'll just be obedient. It's reminded me of that. It's made me excited about it. But the second thing it's done, it's made me far less awkward and afraid to share the gospel in the rest of my life. When we're not in the habit of sharing the gospel, which was where I was three months ago, when you actually get a chance to share the gospel, you're so like awkwarded out because you know there's two things we don't talk about in our culture is politics and religion, right? And so you're just not used to it and you have an experience where you kind of share and you feel like you butchered it and it was awful. But when you start doing it a couple times, you begin to realize there's just nothing better than sharing the gospel with someone. I mean, it's the best news to talk to someone and tell them, hey, God came into a broken, sinful world and he came to bear the brokenness on himself so that we can all know what real life is and to see it begin to connect with people. Man, there's just, there's just nothing better. And I've begun to think, I gotta do this with my own neighbors. And so I have a dad on my cul-de-sac who, who uh, uh, he used to run for UofL and he wants to go running with me. Now, keep in mind, he's 55, okay? That's how I'm going to keep up with him. But, he was a, but anyways, we, we go running. We've gone running a couple of times. The last time we went running, I was able to share the gospel with him. Now, that time, it didn't go that well, I'll be honest. I feel like he was a little bit uncomfortable. But you know, the beautiful thing is that he lives next to me, so I'm going to see him again. But the point is, as, I've, as we've gone out, I've just been forced to actually have conversations that we're uncomfortable having and realizing, wow, one, people aren't offended, and two, man, it is, it is a beautiful, fun thing to share the gospel with someone because I believe the gospel. I really do. I, again, I've never done this before, a whole time of what God's doing in my heart. But I want to share it with you. And, and again, I want to share with you for this reason. If God can do this in my life, who am not naturally evangelistic, right? Like when I go on an airplane, I'm not thinking about sharing the gospel with the person next to me. I'm thinking I have three hours to read. When I go to coffee shops, I'm the guy wearing headphones so that you don't try to talk to me. But if God can do this kind of work in my life, he can do it in yours too. If you're willing to take a step of obedience. My hope is that you don't just feel guilty and then try to move on as quickly as you can. 
As a Christian, sometimes we feel guilt, and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, right? The guilt of, of former sin, and we need to preach the gospel of Christ has covered that. And Satan is the accuser, but he has no claim on me because I'm Christ's. But when we feel guilty because we're not doing things that we're supposed to be doing, the answer is not to just preach the gospel and move on. The answer is to begin to obey. <laughs> and the amazing thing is that when we begin to obey, we realize what life in Christ really is. What's the next step of faithful obedience for you? Maybe it's joining us next time we go out. We'll go out the second Saturday of July. If, there, if you're not able to go that day, I go out almost every week now, and you can always go with me. Maybe it's, you know, not all of us can physically go out with us, right? And so maybe it's, it's, it's praying. We have a group me thread. We had a few people praying for us as we went out, and that was a beautiful encouragement. Maybe it's praying for us as we go out. What's the next step for you to step into the mission that God has given to us? We are called to local ministry. God has created us. He's created this church for local ministry to evangelistically engage those who are near to us in this neighborhood and in our own neighborhoods. But we're also called to local ministry that is far from us. I'm going to finish this third point really quick. Again, the argument is that Jesus died and rose again to create a community that would engage in local ministry, those who are near to them. But it would also be a community that would engage in local ministry, those who are far from them. As Jesus sent out his disciples into Jerusalem, they're engaging in local ministry, they're engaging those who are near to them with the gospel. What about everyone outside of Jerusalem? And, 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 and what we see in chapter 8 of, of, of Acts is that God, again, God's heart is for all people to know him. And so he sends persecution in the form of Saul. And it says as Saul is ravaging the church, the people are dispersed. But what do they do when they're dispersed? Verse 4, chapter 8, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about doing local ministry in places that were far from where they were originally. That's what international missions is, by the way. It's local ministry that's not in your hometown, across the ocean, perhaps. And of course, when God calls uh, the Apostle Paul, that's the, the, the full beginning of, of the missionary movement of the church, where God says in Acts 9, 15, for Paul's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel as well. And then all of Acts 10 to 28 is how the church engages in local ministry near and far. What's interesting with the book of Acts, though, is it ends abruptly. It's got, I mean, Acts is a wonderful story. Just from a narrative perspective, it's, it's a wonderfully written story, but it ends abruptly. Paul's in prison. We don't know what's going to happen, and boom, it's done. And the reason Acts ends the way it does, almost on a cliffhanger, is that the point of the story hasn't completed yet. It's still being carried out by Christians. The story is still being carried out by Vine Street Baptist Church and every church every neighborhood where it's located, who's, who's given this commission to bear witness to what we know of Christ, we're carrying out, we're Acts 29, the next stage in that story. And so here's a concluding question for us. <clears throat> will we join the early Christians, will we join God himself in his missionary work, both near and far? Will we join him? That's the question. And here's a truth that we can take to the bank. We read it this morning, Matthew 9, 37. And Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is God, 
And so when he says the harvest is plentiful, it's true. He knows. The harvest is plentiful. We're not seeing people come to know Christ, not because people don't, not because there's not potential fruit, it's because we're not laboring. So will we as a church labor? Will we answer that call? Of course, where should we begin? Well, how about this neighborhood? It's the one place we all have in common. Commit to pray. Commit to coming if you're physically able. And I tell you what, if we do begin to share the gospel, if we engage in real local ministry here in Louisville, and we do it faithfully, something's going to happen. And that is that some of us will begin to feel a burden for those who live in places where Christ is not readily available. Some of us are going to feel a burden. I need to go where Jesus is not known. And it won't, and it'll come because we're sharing the gospel where we are in the place God has put us. And the Spirit will begin to use that and move that. And we'll send some of us out to other parts of the world to do local ministry that's far away. May that be so in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will fill us with a passion for the mission you've given us. Lord, we confess that often we've been distracted, we've been afraid, we've been, um, we've just not believed. But Lord, we as a church, we know that you have us here for a reason. We want to be faithful to that. We want to be a community that is marked by local ministry. Make us that way. Lord, if... Lord, may no one return home full of guilt today. For you are God who has redeemed us and you are our Father and you love us. And so we can trust you when you send us out that that really is the best thing. And we trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.